This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone on this blessed Lord's Day, our third week as Silver City gathering here together. It's a blessing that we have been able to gather together to worship uh, and go through this field guide of church planting in Titus. So we're going to keep plowing forward. So today, as we come to the scriptures, we think about healthy churches being stabilized by the cast of godly leadership that we learned about last week, worth imitating in Titus 1, 5 through 9. And I want us to kind of press that metaphor of, of the cast forward a little bit more this morning. I, I want to give you this thought picture, this, this uh, word experiment that you play in your head for our guide this morning. How many of you, raise your hands, have ever bo- broken a bone before? You're clumsy. You clumsy people. I'm just kidding. I have been a clumsy person, and I've broken a bone myself. One time, knock on wood, one time, uh, it was about 20 years ago, 20 years ago to the day almost, I was, <clears throat> I was a fat little kid who had just gone to court day, the big festival downtown, the big flea market downtown, and had bought the, the in thing that year the end thing. Let me date, date it for you a little bit. It was a Razor scooter. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. This dates it pretty well, doesn't it? Late, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Backstreet Boys had just dropped their Millennium album, which had nothing to do with eschatology for you theology nerds out there and have never listened to uh, Millennium by Backstreet Boys. Do yourself a favor and do it. It's an instant classic. I guess you could say. Blonde tips were cool. They were awesome. So was the waterfall haircut. You remember this, don't you, where you, you shaved like all of this, but then you just spiked your bangs up right there, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, you 90s kids. Cell phones didn't even have screens for the little ones here and the younger ones. Cell phones used to be just like this brick of a phone thing and sometimes they even came in a suitcase. Sometimes they were even connected to your car and you could even take them out of your car. And the internet really wasn't even a thing. I mean, how, it's like Stone Age, right? Everyone, they were guzzling the delicious and nutritious nectar of the gods. It was a simpler time, really, wasn't it? It was a simpler time. But I I had this scooter, and while I was, the epitome of unathletic, I thought contrary. I thought, I thought that I was the, the scooter version of Tony Hawk. Because I played a lot of Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 on my Nintendo 64, and that's who I thought I was. Even though I'd never stepped on a skateboard in my life, and I couldn't, and I still can't. So one day I convinced my mom, she's here, I love you mom, I'm sorry for this. Uh, I convinced my mom to let me ride my scooter down this big hill at my granny's house. And I remember it like it was yesterday. You remember? Like, yeah. Love you, mom. I stared down this, this big, steep, blacktop hill at my granny's house. I mean, it had to be probably three-tenths of a mile. It's a pretty, pretty long driveway, and it's sloping down, and I'm, I'm up there in in not a helmet or pads or anything, just me and my fat insulatedness that I hope would break my fall, I guess. But I think I'm the scooter Tony Hawk. So you know what I do? I, I push off. Here it is right here. Ready? I push off. I push off. And I start picking up speed. Oh, yeah. I'm awesome. Being a rather large child meant that I picked that steam and speed up quickly. I was 
I was aware. This wasn't like I didn't know what was going on. I was aware because the scooter, it was screaming and wobbling. Ah, like that. So I went to put my foot on the, on the rear brake, which was like a little thin piece of aluminum that just kind of clamped down on the rear tire to try to you know, slow you down. But whenever you wear size H Huskies like I did, which, which I thought meant handsome, that's what mom told me. And, you know, love you, mom, again. <laughs> that thin piece of aluminum, it did not do a good job of slowing me down. It was about as effective as a beach towel for a parachute jumping off the Eiffel Tower. So what it did do well was be a, a piece of, of good conductive metal like it is, and that friction of that rear wheel spinning probably, I don't know, 10,000 RPM made that little piece of aluminum catch so much friction that it heat, it, I mean, it heated up like it was going to melt the thing. And you know what? I felt it through my shoe. That's how hot it was. And I'm not good at math and I'm not good with like calculating things and wind and all these things. But that, I think that I was going at, at least 300 miles per hour. So when you, when you can't slow down, you can't slow down. You make like the eagles, don't you? And you live life in the fast lane and you try to fly. Except I didn't. I went hands and face first into a ditch, barely missing, missing a fence. And I laid there dazed, confused. Am I dead? I think I've knocked my teeth out again. That's another story. Okay, I'm alive. I don't see birds or angels. So I pop up. Oh, I leave that godforsaken scooter right there in the grass. <laughs> and I walk up to the house and my mom immediately knew that something was wrong. She looked over me and like I looked fine. I had some scrapes and stuff and wow, I can't believe you're all right. But then after my liquid courage of adrenaline wore off in about 15 minutes, my wrist, my left wrist began to throb. The thing is, is there was a fracture beneath the surface that we couldn't see. My wrist didn't swell that much, but the pain, the pain of that broken bone was, was deep below the surface. Why do I give you this illustration from my life this morning? Is it to be funny and cute? No, it's because the general concept of it, the, the arrogant will of my little fat self, uh, my desire to, to pursue my own flesh, it, it caused my body to break. And that's exactly what we have before us in the text this morning. I, I want to I read from uh, the beginning of Titus chapter 1 all the way through uh, the end of chapter 1 this morning so we get the full context because it'll, it'll refresh us with the few sections that we've looked in the past two weeks with the introduction of the letter and then the godly cast of elders and leaders. So let's look at the first chapter of Titus in its entirety this morning. Would you open your Bibles if you're willing and able to... 1 through 16. Titus chapter 1, the entirety of it. Here for you, the living, all-sufficient, inspired Word of God this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what ought not to be taught. Rebuke them sharply 
no, I'm sorry, one of their one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by would you cause your spirit to illuminate the text for us this morning and do work on our hearts? Would we have the implanted word? Would you refine us to be more like your son? God, would you restore us to the image and being made in your image? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you call us to repentance? And would you sanctify us by your spirit? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we, we focused on the cast, the structure that kind of set the broken bone of the church in Crete straight. It got it back together. And what was that cast? Well, it was proper leadership through proper qualifications found in the proper, trustworthy word of Scripture. Now here this week, we are privileged with, with mining the text and asking the question, what was causing the Cretan churches to be broken in the first place? Titus, set what remains in order. Cast up the broken bones, and that cast is godly leadership. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Think about that. Why is it right out of the gate? This is, this is the cast, the, the structure, what's going to protect and to help heal the church at Crete. Why is it godly leadership? Why didn't Paul tell Titus to set up like a local coalition to gather offerings for other churches or to do a, 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 a food pantry or VBS, do something for the kids, you know, that kind of stuff? Well, because none of these were an issue. None of these were even on the forefront of Paul's mind. None of these were the break. None of these were the fracture. Think about this. If, if the bone was broken and the cast was proper leadership, then what do you think caused the broken bone? Improper leadership, right? The break was under the surface. It wasn't something out in the open. It wasn't a compound fracture, which are nasty, like what was happening in Corinth. It was subtle. It was below the surface. It was, it was swelling and beginning maybe to turn purple. And as we will examine later, these bad leaders professed to know God and were inside the church. This wasn't like persecution from outside or just something rankly crazy. See, after giving Titus a, a list of qualifications for an elder, which were household and personal character qualifications, Paul ends that section of, of Titus 1, 5 through 9 by telling Titus an elder should know his Bible, stick to it, and be able to teach others and point out when other people contradict it. You see, this is abundantly important to our study this morning. The concept of the Word of God as central to all of Christian life, all of it, every aspect. The Westminster Confession of Faith states in section 1.6 this, the whole counsel of God Concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, life, is either expressly set down in the scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, right, you can't add to the Bible, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, these types of things which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. So God's Word is our guide for every single area of life. Paul wanted Titus to know this, and Titus did know this, but he's making sure he did. Look, starting in verse 10, Paul shifts with the word for, which signifies the kind of because purpose of the cast of godly leadership. So here's the godly household, the godly character, what he's supposed to do, this elder, because there are many who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Over and against the blueprint or the the cast of godly leadership is this demolition God, this demolition force of false teachers inside the church who are causing this, this fracturing Right. Now, here's, here's the thing about broken bones. You that have had a broken bone, you can live with some broken fingers and broken toes, and a, you can live with a broken wrist, but you can't live long, and many times you can't live at all with a broken neck or a broken back or a broken skull. Paul and Titus were aware that the young churches at Crete were, were suffering some, some fractured toes and and fingers, and maybe even a hobbled up wrist, but their neck wasn't broken yet. Their back wasn't broken yet. So how were these fractures happening again? Bad leadership. This bad leadership was the, was it, it was the equivalent of the arrogant will to ride down the hill for fun, for their, for their own gain, which ended up producing a broken wrist in the churches, breaking the body. In verse 10, notice what these bad leaders are. We get these, these three triads, these triads of, of, of three of, of characteristics of these bad leaders. Look at the first one in verse 10. In, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Right. As we will see in the six verses before us this morning, each quality of these bad leaders, these false teachers, is a direct antithesis of what the godly leader is supposed to be. Godly leaders are meant to influence. They're meant to influence their local flock and they're to uh, guard that body that God has assigned them to and they're to combat against every form of bad leadership and false teaching by being the opposite of it. See this? So these initial three descriptors of the bad teachers they're just as unique as the descriptions of the godly leader in Titus 1, 7 through 10. Remember, we, we, we looked at those characteristics. The a lot of those words are solely unique to Titus or only found in the scriptures one or two times. Well, right here, it's the same thing. These false teachers, these bad leaders, these ungodly leaders are insubordinate. Well, we've heard that word already in Titus. When Paul tells Titus that the potential elder's children cannot be insubordinate. This word insubordinate is used, it's used four times in the New Testament, twice right here within a few verses of one another in Titus. It's a word that we don't use very often in our modern parlance, and it simply means rebellious, lawless. You know, as a side, I think it's interesting that Paul uses this word here again after using it to describe what a, a potential elder's children should not be. They should not be insubordinate. Paul very well could be, and I think he is, pointing to the fact that the child of a potential elder in Titus 1.6 is a grown child. It's not just a, a, he's not talking about a toddler. This is a grown child. And their insubordination is not merely them being rebellious against mom and dad, like some wild oats years or something like that, but it's actually a, a willing assent to the very false teaching that's causing all this fracturing in the church at Crete. So these, these false teachers are rebellious against authority, like rebellious children, a very common biblical theme, and rebellion against the truth, which is opposite of the godly elder who is disciplined and holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. These false teachers are bad leaders, whatever you want to call them. They're also empty talkers. One Greek, one word in the Greek here, metalagos. It just simply means they babble. They're babblers, worthless speech. They have no idea what they're talking about. There's a word dilettante. You need to add that to your your vocabulary, your thesaurus, and use it. That's an English word, dilettante. It means this. It's someone who knows a little bit about something, but when they speak, they they act like they know everything about it. You know someone like that, don't you? That's what these false teachers are. They're babblers. They're dilettantes. They're not wise. 
They're not sober-minded. They have little self-control, and they spew nonsense out of their mouths. Only time in the New Testament, by the way, that this word is used. These false teachers are also deceivers, is what it says. The only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And it connotes one who is, is misleading and a fraud, the opposite of being upright. And while this word right here, the single word here, is is original, uh, in the original language is unique and only used right here in Titus. The concept of deception and being deceivers all over these scriptures with many synonyms for it. And the first concept of it actually crops up in the first book of the Bible, in the third chapter, Genesis 3.13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? She's eaten the fruit and the fall has happened. And the woman said, The serpent, what? Deceived me. These false teachers are following their father, Satan. The general outline of these false teachers is followed by a descriptor. Right? This, this first triad is followed by this, the circumcision. Paul says, especially or above all, the circumcision party. That doesn't mean that the insubordinate, empty-talking deceivers were only in this, false, uh, this, only in this group of the circumcision party. Like This was only them, but this was the majority of them, and they were particularly rebellious. So what was the circumcision party? The answer to that question isn't as clear-cut as some would have us think, but to blanket the statement, the circumcision party, they believed that you had to adhere to Jewish ceremonial laws like circumcision or food laws or ritual laws in addition to or before you could become a Christian. So you had to be a Jew before you could be a Christian, whether you were Jewish or Gentile. That's kind of like the umbrella but just like all false teaching, there's a spectrum from right to left. The circumcision party landed over toward the far right, again with different flavors. Some thought you only had to be circumcised, as in, you know, take the mark of a Jew outwardly to become a Christian. Some held to that plus food laws and ceremonial laws and cleanliness laws. And some were, were extreme. They were the extremes, the, uh, the ultra <laughs> The ultra-circumcision party that required like aestheticism, meaning uh, this, this pious forced starvation, abstaining from marriage, sectarianism. Uh, this sounds a lot like the group that was uh, in, in Colossae, in Colossians 2. But wherever the Cretan circumcision party landed on the spectrum, we do know that what they were teaching was essentially the same thing that much of the early church dealt with in every location she rooted herself. See, with Christ being the Jewish Messiah who would heal the nations, uh, Isaiah 25, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22, bringing salvation to all peoples, as we'll see next week, the inclusion of Gentiles meant false teaching in the early church was a mixture of incorrect Jewish thought and incorrect Gentile pagan thought. That means that there's a range. There's a range just like we know that there's a range of false teaching in our own day. I want to encourage you to read Colossians 2 and the little short book of Jude and, and 1 Thessalonians and, and 1 Corinthians along with Acts to really get a flavor and a palate for, for the false teaching spectrum that was going on in the early church. So what exactly are these false teachers and bad leaders doing within the church at Crete that's causing these bones to break? Verse 11, but let's look at it in reverse. They're teaching what they ought not to teach for shameful gain, upsetting whole families, they must be silenced. This group is teaching false doctrine, false doctrine. Now, you may be new to like a Reformed church or a church that does expositional preaching, and, and you may have even come from a, a background that, that you've heard, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus. You know what that is? That's doctrine. Oh my goodness, that's called contradiction. You know why? Because that statement of, I don't need doctrine, paradox, if you understand what doctrine is. Doctrine is simply a, a word from, from a Latin word that means teaching. I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus. So you're being taught to not need doctrine, which is a teaching. So it can't be A and not A at the same time. Doctrine does not mean this heady, ivory tower, useless knowledge. It just means teaching. What do you believe? What do you know about the Bible? What do you know about your faith? False doctrine. So false. False teaching. False compared to what? The apostolic witness of Paul and the other apostles and the prophets before him, 
meaning the whole entirety of the scriptures. Again, it, it's, it's on the spectrum somewhere of ceremonial laws. But not only that, they are teaching for shameful gain. Don't miss that. Shameful gain. We've heard that before too, haven't we? These people are doing the exact opposite of what the godly leader uh, in Titus 1, 5 through 9 is to not do. They're, they're being greedy for money. Additionally, we have these false teachers upsetting whole families. These bad leaders are the negative world versions of the ideal leader. The ideal leader is to have a godly family. And these bad leaders are teaching destructive doctrine, splitting up whole families. Now, interestingly, family here is that word oikos, which means house, that same word used to connote the word steward back in 7. Remember the oikonomos, the house ruler? That's right here. He's upsetting a whole households. I think this points to the fact that most of the New Testament church were house churches. They met in patron homes. And so it's not like these false teachers are going in just knocking on random people's houses uh, that are family, you know, that they know are Christians and be like, you're wrong and let me tell you why, and causing these big dissensions just randomly. No, this is pointing to the fact that these false teachers are actual leaders in these churches and they're, they're upsetting and breaking up whole churches. When we read in the New Testament about false teachers creeping into households to capture weak women, you know, 2 Timothy 3, Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, that kind of stuff, we don't need to think like it's, it's some perv, okay, to use some strong language, like creeping into households. No, this is, this is, this is the sociopathic, narcissistic, leader wannabe pastor who creeps into the church, the household. And he takes advantage of people. So how is Titus to handle this? Titus, don't worry about it. It'll all work itself out. No, Paul says they must be silenced, which more literally here in the original language means to bridle or to muzzle. They are full of debauchery and they're, they're reckless, they're wild, which the man of God in Titus 1.6 is not to be. Titus, you go shut them up. You break them like a horse. They're wild animals. See, this is over and against modern evangelicalism, isn't it? Where, where everyone is on the same team as long as they say, I love Jesus. Most of our modern controversies, whether it's critical race theory in the Southern Baptist Convention or revoice in the PCA or whatever, is because Christians think being meek means being a doormat. And so they show indifference towards confronting problems out of fear of criticism. So anything just walks right in. Everything walks right in. Not so with Paul. Not so with Jesus. And may it not so be with us. Paul moves uh, on to what is dubbed the Cretan paradox in Titus 1.12. Listen to this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This saying... It's thought to come from a, a guy named Epimenides who was a wizard, uh, not like Gandalf. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Cool. Four? We can all watch it afterwards if you want to. My favorite's The Two Towers. The books are better. But he's, he's a, he's, Epimenides is known as a wizard, a magician. right? He's pulling the wool over people's eyes like Simon Magus back in Acts. They're liars is what he says. They're liars. There was a slang saying in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman times to play the Cretan or to Cretanize. This meant you did anything you could to deceive people to get something for yourself. You're exploitative. You're an opportunist. They're evil beasts. Here again, a beast needs to be bridled or muzzled because if they don't, they'll rip everyone to shreds. Uh, often the Bible symbolizes bad rulers or enemies as beasts, Proverbs 28, 15, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Lastly, lazy gluttons. The word glutton gives the idea of, of eating in the stomach. But however, this word is also used in the New Testament to describe the womb, specifically barren wombs. So here this term of, of lazy bellies paints kind of this double entendre. 
They have stomachs that don't work, meaning they consume but are never filled. And secondly, they have wombs that don't work, meaning they're promiscuous to the nth degree. They're pleasure seekers. These false teachers are slaves and messengers of themselves, teaching what does not lead to godliness, the opposite of Titus 1.1. So in verse 13, Paul says that this testimony about these Cretans is true. It's a paradox, right? If Cretans are always liars, and that is true, and Epimenides was a Cretan who said it, how do we know that that testimony isn't a lie? See, the, see how funny that is. So there are two interesting aspects of this Cretan paradox I actually want to point out to you, one literarily and one historically. Firstly, Paul is doing something intentional here. You think Paul is concerned to simply hate on Cretans? Of course not. He found the churches there. That's why he's writing this letter to Titus. He loves them. If you remember at the beginning of the letter of Titus, Paul praises God as being what? The God who never lies, free from all deceit. Paul's implying that these Cretan false teachers are preaching and proclaiming a different God. He is implying that through their incorrect teaching, their greed and their lust, they are proclaiming a false God, and they are. Do you know that you can believe in the God of the Bible, Christ is Messiah and Savior, the, the Bible is the Word of God, conservative values, and then by your actions and misunderstandings, end up reshaping them all into a false God. And what that usually is, is Fox News. We see this in our day. On the right, but we really see it on the left, the progressive left. I love God. He's so gracious and kind because God is love. As they wave their little rainbow flag and tell you to their gender because even though they were born Richard Levine, you've got to call him Rachel now because he's grew his hair out and he's fat and wears lipstick like Mimi from Drew Carey. Really? That's a woman? But God is love. Well, yeah, First John 4 does say God is love, but what does that even mean? It does not mean what culture defines as love, because what culture defines as love is sexual promiscuity and perversion. They have scripture, these progressive left and the right does too, and they do the same stuff. They've got some right idea. Yeah, God is love, but that's not the full idea. To love something is to hate something that would damage that love. They take the name of God or Jesus and they make themselves their own little idol and then they give it the same name of the God of all the universe, the holy, triune, blessed God, and that is blasphemy. Historically also here with this paradox, we see this wrong Jewish, Jewish thought and wrong pagan thought colliding and converging. Why would people concerned with Jewish ceremonial laws, let's say, I don't know, the food portions, like you can't eat pork, bacon's bad, don't do that, because you, we don't understand what Leviticus is really even about. But here, you've got to do what this says. Why would they be a, a bunch of sexually perverse wild stallions? Exactly. It doesn't make sense, does it? Exactly. The false teaching of the early church was a chimera, this big multi-headed beast, nasty uh, Greek uh, Greek evil beast looking thing. It was all these different things molded together. It's no different today. All false teaching of today is the same as the false teachings all the way back into the garden with different faces and different names. It's all the same. Verse 13, Paul says the culture of the Cretans overall, it's not good. It's interesting that the apostle Paul, you know, Mr. Holiness, Mr. I wrote half of the New Testament, he knows quite a bit about secular stuff, doesn't he? He quotes Greek philosophy in Acts 17. He, he's quoting a, a pagan wizard here. Uh, he also knows all of his rights as a Roman citizen back in Acts 22. Uh, what should that tell us? 
should tell us that we're not meant to segregate ourselves into our homes and our churches as if they're bomb shelters and we twiddle our thumbs and wait for the world to end. No, God has given us this world and a commission to make disciples in it in those cultures and places we come to just as he gave Adam a commission in the garden. Paul was aware of the world and the time he lived in. That doesn't mean he went to gladiator games and approved of that stuff. That doesn't mean he himself was a glutton, but he knew what was going on. So should we. We should know what's going on. If these false teachers are liars, what is Titus to do? What do we do about this? If he's to muzzle them, what does he do afterwards? Does he just take them to the pound and have them euthanize or shoot them? No, 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 no. No, look at verse 13, and I'll tell you right now, this is a great detriment to many Reformed, first, reformed churches. Rebuke them sharply. Yes, yes. Let's call all the false teachers out. Where do you want me to start? I've got my list ready. Come on, let me get it out like Santa Claus checking it twice. Oh my gosh, it's this long. And to a degree, that's, yes, that's, that's correct. I understand the mentality behind it, especially in our day of, of Christian celebrity and interconnectedness. All right, all right. So get the, get the pitchforks out. Witch hunt. Hold on a minute. Finish the verse. Rebuke them so that they may be sound in their faith. Paul is not interested in Titus doing a smash mouth church takeover, going in, kicking false teachers out, and just poking them in the eye. Paul is actually concerned to reform these false teachers because they actually have, I don't know, eternal souls and are destined to either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. He wants them to stop believing and teaching what is wrong and repent and believe and possibly even teach what is right. It drives me nuts in our social media age. We so often want to scorch earth policy someone who is an error and, and own or destroy. So, so and so destroyed somebody. That's not Christ. That's Satan. That is the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We beckon and call for repentance and correct doctrine that these people, that all people who are walking in darkness may see the glorious light. We want people to be sound in faith going on. It's a little phrase, sound in faith. We've already heard it before in the ideal elder. Where does this sound faith come from? Does it come from, uh, you know, having the correct political view? Does it, does it come from uh, having a, a, a degree from somewhere? Does it come from sitting under the exact right person? No, from the trustworthy word, the Bible. What's interesting is this word sound here uh, in, in the Greek it actually means healthy. It's where we get the word hygiene from. Sound is great, trans that's, that's correct. But sound or healthy. And if I say like, my, oh man, just my, my head's not sound. It's not healthy. Something's going on right. We understand this. Paul is advocating for healthy teaching leading to healthy living, leading to healthy churches, leading to healthy societies. What these false teachers are partaking of and dishing out is unhealthy. Verse 14, again, Jewish myths, which are basically Jewish versions of, of Greek myths, with, but they use Bible characters uh, in the place of someone like Hercules or Zeus. Uh, and then the commands of men, commands of people, commands of men who turn away from the truth, the truth, Paul says. Again, pointing back to the beginning of Titus 1.1, the truth, which is the gospel. All truth is based in the knowledge, the correct knowledge of God, Titus 1, 1, again, and it's found in his word, which is truth, John 17, and this truth gives way to truthful living, unlike the false teachers. The commands of men here, this is a very interesting little phrase. It actually may be one of the earliest direct references to a gospel in the entire New Testament, showing the, the gospel accounts are written much earlier, pinned down, written much earlier than a lot of your liberal scholars want to this looks like it's a direct reference to Mark 7, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for elevating their, their extra-biblical rules above the actual law of God, teaching the commandments of men. Kind of like, you know, hey, yeah, you're not allowed to drink alcohol once you're a Christian because it's just, it's a sin. The Bible does not say that. It says, do not be a drunkard. Yeah, but it might ruin your witness. Then, be, then use some discernment. Don't drink around alcoholics. Don't do stuff like that. 
Well, but it says that you can't, you can be a Christian if you, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you can't wear blue hats on Tuesdays. It doesn't say that. That's legalism, and that's what's going on right here. And Jesus, in Mark 7, he's quoting Isaiah 29. He says, you bunch of Pharisees, you're, you're elevating the commandments of men. So why do, I, why do I think Paul's not quoting Isaiah 29? Why do I think he's quoting Mark 7? Because of what he says in Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. In Mark 7, uh, 14 through 21, the section directly after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees of their elevation of man-made rules above God's own word, or, or taking God's word and twisting it to make their own rules that the Bible says nothing about. Right after this, Jesus immediately begins talking about what really defiles a person. Same type of language Paul is using right here because Paul is echoing Jesus. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who have been purified by the fear and admonition of the Lord, through the washing of the word, through the regeneration of the spirit, born unto new life, to them, all things are pure. This doesn't mean Paul is advocating sin as if to say, go ahead, dear Christian, go to those gladiator games, go to those pagan temples, do that kind of stuff they do. No, what does he say in Romans 6? Should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. What Paul is doing here is reacting to some of the false teaching of these bad leaders. They apparently are very much in line with the false teachers at Colossae who are concerned about, don't you handle, don't touch, don't do that, don't do this. You can't celebrate that holiday. Don't do that. You have to celebrate this one. You can't do that. Look at the calendar. Oh, you ate meat. It's Friday. We're not supposed to eat meat on Friday. Oh, because Friday, that's, that is beyond meat Friday. You've got to eat your mealworms. You are sinning. You've got to go do something about that. Paul says, no. To those whom God has called to himself and saved, they are pure. Not because of what they do, but because of what God has done for them and in them through Christ and the Spirit. This, all this other stuff, is unbiblical addition. It is rather those who are obsessed excuse me, with regulations, these false teachers, they're the ones who are actually defiled. They're so concerned about someone defiling themselves that in their attempt to make up rules to keep people pure, they defile and, and pollute everyone else. How do they do that? Verse 16, because they profess to know God, yet by their actions profess they don't know him. They do not know the truth that leads to godliness. They aren't crazy, pagan, uh, you know, preaching Zeus, something like that. These are people who claim to know God, making the church at Creed unhealthy. They're in the church. They aren't open, festering wounds caused by a burn, outside persecution. They're broken bones beneath the surface that you can feel, but you can't always see. Paul says this kind of behavior is detestable, it's disobedient, it's unfit. It's just because they proclaim to know God doesn't mean that they get to make up whatever kind of little silly rule and teaching that they want because whatever is in your head, it never stays there. It always flows to the hands. Right? They proclaim to know God, but they do not know what that means. The Westminster says again, chapter 1, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and that all decrees of counsel, opinions of ancient writers, and doctrines of men has to be scripture. These false teachers and all false teachers judge not by the standard of God's word, but by their own standard of themselves. And many times they take the standard of God's word and they twist it to make up little silly rules for themselves and that if you don't follow them, then something's wrong with you. You're not really a Christian. Why do you think that? Because I saw you do X, Y, Z. What's wrong with that? It's not a sin. The Bible doesn't say, well, yes, it does. It says right here, and it's taken out of context. Or they completely disregard certain words. They make doctrines of men. It's kind of like the old saying of don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. It's kind of like that. Who would want to date a woman that chews tobacco anyway? How does any of this apply 
to us in the 21st century. We're not living on Crete. I have one point of application for us this morning. And it's going to be a, a point of application that is reoccurrent in Titus. Right belief should live to right living. The text before us this morning deals with the opposite of the ideal leader in Titus 1, 5 through 9. We are called to each of us as Christians to imitate the faith of the ideal elder since he himself is modeled after Christ. These false teachers in Titus this morning uh, are the opposite of who we as God, God's people are called to be. This morning, I want to call you to action. Thinking about these false teachers and the false teaching and what we as Christians are to do when we are around it means we are to address false teaching with the hope of weeding it out and helping whoever has believed it or is teaching it to become stable, rooted, anchored, and repentant in the trustworthy word, the scriptures. We as children, I'm sorry, we as Christians, children of a common faith, should yearn and long for all to have the people should desire to see God shut the mouth of liars and false prophets. Psalm 12, the kind of the foundation text for our church. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. God will silence and shatter liars. He will, he will quell false teaching. All words, all false words will be dominated and set right by his own word because they are pure. His words are pure. But this morning, before you applaud and you say, yes, God's going to get rid of that false teaching. He's going to get rid of that. I want you to look into yourself and make sure that it is not you who are going to be silenced. Look to the false teacher of this text this morning. Are you like them? Paul tells Titus to, to teach healthy doctrine, to make healthy people through this healthy doctrine. Being physically healthy takes effort. It takes a regiment of diet and exercise and sleep. 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily training is good. It is good. You need to train your body. You need to be healthy. And godliness is of greater value than that. It doesn't say that, that it's not of any use training your body, but godliness and bodily training that go together, you need to train them both. You who profess to know God, you, do you believe in Christ plus something? Do you believe salvation is of the cross plus your good works? Oh, I believe that, but I've got to work to, to keep it or he's going to be mad at me. Then you're believing a false doctrine. You're believing a false teaching, which means that you're living out a false and broken teaching and people are thinking that that's correct. Repent and be taught the trustworthy word. Let it be your cast and strengthen you. You who profess to know God. Is it you just got to believe Jesus died on the cross and then you can't, you can't do this. You can't ever do this. But the scriptures don't say that. I keep coming back to alcohol. That's not because I drink or I think that, that everybody needs to go get shammered today at Applebee's. But this is a huge one. You Christian... You can't drink. What, it, nothing says that. Nothing is wrong with alcohol. Paul tells Timothy to take a swig for his stomach. Alcohol, wine is the drink of kings. Jesus didn't institute his new covenant with grape juice. He did it with wine. You know why? Because wine, when you swallow it, it has a little bit of a sting to it. And he was about to take the sting of the cup of the Father, so that that cup that we drink, when we drink it, it reminds us of the sting of death that He took in our place. Are you silly? You're adding something to the Scriptures, using the Scriptures and perverting them to make a doctrine of men that's not there. What about you who profess to know God, believe that Jesus saves, but everything in, in, in life that goes wrong, there's a demon in it. Oh, I got up this morning and went to, to go. This is a real, this is a true example. Sid Roth's It's Supernatural, that garbage. There was one episode I remember it because it was so funny. It was, it was comedy gold. I got up this morning. He does this. I got up this morning and I went to flush the toilet and 
It wouldn't work. And so I said, I rebuke you, toilet demon. And it started working. Really? Everything's got a demon in it? Are we, are we, are we pagans now? Christians, you, if you believe that, everything's got a demon in it. That chair doesn't have a demon in it. This doesn't have a demon in it. It's a thing. It has no spirit. That's like Native American pagan stuff. That's not Christianity. That's your version of some sort of myth. Repent and be taught the trustworthy word of, as taught and be supported by it. You profess to know God. Are you unruly, a maverick, never letting anyone correct you, never learning? You're an empty talker. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but your actions, which look exactly like the world, prove you to be a deceiver. As if to say, all you got to do is go to church, pray a little prayer, put a little money in the basket, be nice. You know, you can do whatever you want. Your actions, you are teaching what ought not to be taught for shameful gain. And the shameful gain that you are teaching, you can live how you want, treat the cross of Christ like fire insurance and blaspheme God himself. You need to repent and be anchored in the trustworthy word as taught. I do not call each of you to think about yourself because I want you to doubt your salvation. I call each of you to think about the ideal elder and the false teachers so that you may be healthy. Maybe you have never been confronted by the word of God like you had the past few weeks. Then repent and then come talk to me because you need to know what it means to walk on the path of righteousness. Maybe you have been confronted by the word the past few weeks. The very word of God, the sword of Hebrews 4 that divides bone from flesh, well then let the word do the work. We need to set that bone straight. Maybe we need to get in there with the word, cut it open a little bit and make sure that we have it placed right. Do not be detestable and do not be disobedient. Look back to the introduction this morning of my little scooter mishap. From the outside, everything seemed okay with my wrist, but after we had the x-ray and saw my wrist compared to a normal wrist that was healthy, we knew that there was a problem. There was some pain. Yes, the cast hurt. Yes, the setting was uncomfortable. But after a while, the structure of that cast, the setting, gave uh, strength to my bones and caused them to grow back stronger. You need to look to this and set your life according to the scriptures. Look to the word. Know what it says from front to back and do what it says even if it's uncomfortable. For if you claim to be a Christian and do not do what this word says, then you being an image bearer of God, who reflects God, reflect to the world a lie about who God is and what he does with supposed people he saves. May it be that your mouth is not stopped. May it be that through his word you are conformed to the likeness of Christ so that you know when something is off kilter, both in yourself and others. You must have right knowledge that gives way to right living. If you have right knowledge and never do anything with it, you are a lazy glutton. You're disobedient and insubordinate. If you have wrong knowledge, even if you think it's right, if when tested against the standard of God's pure word, it turns out to be false, the wrong living you are partaking of, it must be repented of, or you prove yourself to be evil and defiled and unfit for any good work. Church, may God give each of us the clarity to know His trustworthy word and do what it says, lest we be liars professing to know God, but deny Him by our works. Grace and peace be with you all. Let's pray.